Hello, and welcome to the Scientist to CEO podcast, where we talk to scientists turned CEO about their journey from the first idea to leading a company forward. These conversations are here to inspire, inform, and entertain every and anyone interested in science, startups, and the beautiful area in between. Today's episode was recorded as part of our monthly talk series. If you wish to be part of our next event, check out our website at spin-up.science or find us on social media. I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Luca Lapani, CEO of Transdermal Diagnostics. Transdermal Diagnostics is a University of Bath spin-out company that is pioneering the development of a wearable technology platform to improve the prevention, diagnosis, and management of chronic conditions. Right now, their main focus is on diabetes. In Luca's own words, we are developing the world's first and only needle-free continuous molecular monitor. And our first aim is to address the diabetes management sector. During our conversation, we talked about what made Lucas start a business, how he deals with his former professor now working for him, and what advice he would give himself before starting a company in the future. But before we dive into that, I wanted to understand what problem within the diabetic community Transdermal Diagnostics is trying to solve. Diabetes is a, I suppose everyone knows that it's a, now a global pandemic. It's a huge crisis afflicting more than 400 million people worldwide. And um, it is, and it's projected to increase to, to more than 700 million in the next 25 years. There are different kinds of groups. So there are type 1 diabetics and they basically need uh, glucose management because they are doing a lot of insulin injections and, uh, you know, they can uh, reduce their sugar level to a threshold where it can cause a life-threatening acute complication of diabetes then uh, and so this population require constant and continuous uh, sugar management um, then there are the type 2 diabetics so uh, for this population i would say uh, unfortunately the you know the healthcare they do not suggest to properly manage their sugar levels with uh, continuous glucose monitors because they are basically too expensive for the the, the NHS and uh, they they still require to manage the sugar levels because over time the the, the condition evolves eventually to uh, to complications that are life threatening complications like heart failures or um, lower limb amputation strokes and and so on currently I would say that the only weapon in the arsenal of diabetic patients are a glucose monitor. So with glucose monitoring devices, they can actually manage their condition. And um, at the moment, there are commercially available devices like finger prick or continuous glucose monitors. But these devices, they are uh, they require needle, so an insertion uh, of a sensor under the skin or pricking the skin, like there is skin disruption and irritation associated with that. There is pain. People uh, suffer from needle phobia, so they do not want to use this. They feel reluctant in using these kind of devices and um, and are expensive because not all patients are eligible for reimbursement and they need it because the, the, the major problem in diabetes is that so this condition causes eventually the rising of complication. I mean, it sounds like a lot of the core mission of the company is really like almost an empathetic one, like, you know, literally removing a pain point out of their lives. So, and, and the idea there is like the real value add also is being able to continuously monitor your glucose level. So you said that, you know, that term a few times. And for those that aren't familiar with it, finger prick obviously is you need to do it a few times a day. But the benefit of what you're looking to do, a continuous glucose monitoring system is that you never have 
the potential missed high glucose level or low glucose level that maybe is you know dangerous for you is that that the direction you're taking it Absolutely. So it's a, it's a major problem because people with diabetes, especially with type 2 diabetes, they since they only rely on finger pricks, and finger pricks is it's a real pain doing that over and over uh, on a daily basis, they, they are not constant in managing their sugar levels. So they can have just a few points instead of the uh, you know prescribed uh, eight measurements a day. So they can just have maybe once or twice a day, but these are they are not indicative of uh, how your uh, habits or your uh, um, lifestyle choices affect your uh, the trends in glycemic levels. At the moment, there are no devices that are needle-free and, and are continuous glucose monitor. And this is what the people with diabetes are looking for. I mean, just touching on that kind of customer piece, I guess, a little bit, like, is, is that what they're looking for? Like, what were the conversations that you had with them and what kind of has been expressed back to you to give you such firm conviction that this is the right technology for the right marketplace? Yeah, I've been talking with uh, hundreds of uh, stakeholders, including diabetic patients, but I've done also surveys, uh, I've conducted surveys on more than 200 diabetic patients. And uh, I mean, I think it was 80 or 90% of the of, pe of people that participated in the survey said, yes, we need a non-invasive continuous monitoring system. And uh, I can understand them because, you know, one may think, okay, but what's the deal in pricking your finger? You do it and then that's it. Yeah, do it for 20 years. Just imagine the pain in your fingers for 20 years, doing constant routine. Or also, I can understand parents when, when they're, that their kids, they have uh, you know, type 1 diabetes. How can you actually insert something under the skin on a, every you know, two times or three times a month? So it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough, and um, I would say one has always to consider the the other perspective. So the perspective of the of the end user, and uh, try to understand what what they are, what they are actually feeling while doing this uh, no this operation on a daily basis. Transitioning that nicely into what you're trying to do, how have you gone about removing that very physical, literal pain of pricking your finger to extract? A blood sample to then test how much glucose is in it what is it that you guys actually are looking to do so our technology it is entirely non-invasive so we we aim to remove this uh, negative emotional burden from uh, diabetic people uh, and uh, it works it is easy so you just need to apply a, a patch on top onto the skin and through some small and defined electric currents, we are able to extract from the skin um, sugar that we collect in particular reservoirs and then we are able to sample the, the sugar concentration in the bloodstream. And uh, yes, so see, and there is also another aspect that is, again, is related to the um, unique architecture of the, of the sensing units. So we will have a multiplexed array uh, of sensing units. So the information that we are going to probe from single hair follicles here and there, it will get uh, kind of, I would say, redundant, but in a good way. So we will have a lot of uh, information, a lot of signal, and then we, we are going to make the average. So we can ensure that we'll have clinical crate accuracy. And uh, 
we already tested in uh, some uh, preliminary human trial and actually the results were quite astonishing. It's exciting. It seems that uh, you know, people actually realize and investors realize that uh, there is a huge market potential and this can be a, a real solution for uh, people afflicted by diabetes. So um, uh, I guess two, two questions. First, obviously you're spinning out of the University of Bath at the moment. So technology, I assume, comes from the University of Bath. Can you tell me a little bit about what the, what the source the inspiration, the direction for the technology actually was to get started? So it started, I would say, since my first year of PhD. Uh, I've been involved in, um, in a program that was called at the time uh, like Research to Innovator. So I've understood that there was a real potential under, for what I was doing in the lab. So a real potential to translate lab experiments in uh, something that is actually that actually exists in the real world, so in a real world application. And um, my my PhD studies were, I would say, I was doing yeah fundamental science because we were the first to to prove that actually glucose can be or molecules can be extracted trans transdermally through single hair follicles. And um, but I would say that a major component of my PhD studies was to fabricate and develop a first prototype. So I immediately realized that this is the first step toward commercialization of something that is greater than uh, just proving that something actually happened. And uh, well, the, yeah, the spin, the spin out process is a, it's a exciting process and, uh, and, and very challenging process. I, I would never thought, um, you know, to deal or to negotiate with the university, um, how, you know, in terms of the of the company, how the IP gets transferred from the, the intellectual property gets transferred from the university to to the company itself, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic journey. Amazing. So, I mean, it sounds for all intents and purposes as if you're on the on the track to the Holy Grail, right? At what stage did you feel? Um, that it was time to stop pursuing this as an academic pathway and start pursuing it as a as a spin-out? I would say right immediately after my PhD studies. Uh, and the reason it's, uh, it's simple, because when you want to make the device, when you want to, to, to make the study, uh, if you want, when you want to shift the study in a real-world application, then there are not so many public funding so there are not so many there are not so many current applications that you can actually pursue to to receive some funding to continue so the only possibility for uh, for you to to create a, a device like that is to make a company and start uh, seeking for a private investment still there are ways to apply for a for, for public funding but they will come later on so okay. i would say that that that, that was the major driver so it was really a look to actually want to, I guess, productize it as opposed to give it just a proof of principle, interesting study. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, talk, again, like talk, talk me through that process. Like, okay, so you decide, guys, we can't go any further with this as an academic research pathway. Let's spin out the company. What does that look like in terms of organizing that uh, you know, I'm imagining sitting at the bottom of the base camp, <laughs> that, that might mountain hike 
uh, of getting everyone on board, getting the, the venture started to be built around and starting to take it out of the university. What does that process look like? Who did you talk to? How did you get it started? Who's helped you along the way? So <clears throat> I would say that everyone has to recognize that they that we do not have all these capabilities in the world. So the first thing that I've done is uh, trying, so I start contacted, contacting a lot of accelerator and uh, I was likely enough to find uh, Spin Up Science. And I found it in a, in a perfect timing for us to, you know, to start the, the, the business and to start actually all the spin out process. And uh, so, yes, the first step is that. So recognize that you cannot move forward without any help. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's mandatory. And so once, uh, you know, we have been, uh, so we start this collaboration and I've, I've done some um, um, upskilling uh, program. And uh, from there, I start to understand better how the, uh, the venture has to grow and what, are, what is actually the analysis to conduct uh, in order to have a successful business. And uh, so continuing with the spin-out process, then it's a method of understanding what is your position at the beginning and what position do you want to have at the end of all the negotiation with the university. And here it's a bit tricky because, you know, coming from the academia, we do not have a lot of experience in that. We do not have any experience in, uh, in startup and what does it mean uh, actually be owner of, of, uh, of this baby, of this entity that, that wants to, that is uh, screaming to grow. Uh, so I've, I've understood that it's fine being naive, but you need to get out and get in the marketplace as soon as possible in a sense that reach out to people that have done the same journey that you want to do and uh, ask, ask questions. I mean, most people, they, they will help you. They're happy to, 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 to help you in some way or to give you some feedback. And uh, this is extremely important because putting the, the right, uh, you know, building block in the, in the right moment in time of a company is the most effective way to, to secure a successful growth. Did you ever consider joining the company rather than as the CEO, as the chief scientific officer or the CSO instead? Fast answer, yes. I suppose <laughs> it is something that every, every PhD or academic person, uh, even postdoc or researcher, they think that they are most suited for, uh, uh, you know, to, to take the role of a CTO mostly uh, for the engineering side or CSO, so chief scientific officer for the more scientific, more, more fundamental scientists. Uh, but I would say since, so the PhD and uh, the academia, the academia in general, it gives you the, uh, the proper mindset to be a good CEO because you, so in this four years of studies or uh, even, you know, even farther, you are constantly thinking critically in every aspect that can affect what you're doing. So it changed the, the perspective because there what you're doing is something uh, you know, quite selective uh, in, uh, in every field. And then uh, when you become CEO, that, that focus shifts to the company. How can you make the company successful? And you apply the same critical thinking there.
Yeah, absolutely. Are any of your um, kind of like academic co-founders, co peers coming into the company with you and kind of what role are they taking and how are you guys working together? So I would say that, again, our situation is an atypical situation because uh, all the uh, so my supervisor of the PhD, Professor Richard Guy and Dr. Adelina Ely, that they have an academic position. They uh, both want to get involved in the company because they realize that there is a huge potential and they are actually, um, you know, driven by the fact that they want to create something. This is unusual because uh, professors or uh, academic, they tend to create a P and then just create new P and then just move uh, in another, another problem. How do you find it kind of, um, or have you found like moving that academic headspace into a more kind of commercial headspace and the different kind of, uh, I guess, metrics that you, you cut against and, how, and why your decisions might go one way versus another, whether you're thinking from an academic head point or whether from a business head point, how have you found that transition? I would say destructive, but in a good way. You need to destruct what you, your you know, daily habit, uh, because if you think about it, what, what are we doing during our academic work? <clears throat> Sorry. So we are in the lab. And we are most of the time alone with our toys, <laughs> with our experiments, and, uh, and that's it. And you want to produce data, and the only way to interface with the external world would be through publication and through conferences. So these are actually the only two contacts with the external world. And uh, while on the other side, when you're in a business, it has to be, uh, it has, there has to have, be a right balance. So this is something that uh, you know. I've just learned it. Just learned it. It's, it's difficult. I'm, I'm not saying that it's easy, but uh, if you're a person that uh, really wants to drive your business forward, you need to be open. So you need to be that point, that that Dirac point, right? This intersection point between the two, the two, the two spaces. Well, so what does that mean on like a practical? setting you know i mean like do you have an example of that, that you can give me where you've said like you know past luca academic luca would have said go this way but now this luca trying to get this spin out company up and off the ground has made a different decision about what to what direction to go in yeah yeah so there is um so since i didn't know what a business actually meant a few uh, just a year ago I would say that my first approach would have been, okay, we create a device, we do it all by ourselves, and we put it in the marketplace. Easy. You can do it. I mean, I'm doing something that is really challenging. I'm extracting some molecules through single hair follicles, and I'm proving that actually this can happen. So why not? Something that is changing is actually this attitude. Like, no, you cannot do something alone. There is no way that you can do it. I mean, potentially you could, but you, the, the, the amount of funding that you would require, it's enormous. And uh, who am I to ensure that this is going to be successful? I don't have the experience now. And uh, potentially we never have, because I will rely on people that are experts in particular fields. So if I, if I would find a person with 40 years of experience in uh, logistics, I will speak with him to understand what has he done in, all, all, you know, in his lifetime uh, uh, experience. So, it, it's, so this is something that changed. 
what would you um what would you say just to someone getting started with that uh kind of phase of exploration where you're trying to work out is the business actually vital the business idea actually viable what are the primary things that you would tell someone to really go out and prove to your to yourself to themselves uh, to really know, to have conviction that there's a company out there worth building and that they should continue on, you know, the next three, five, ten, however many years to actually get the thing built? It depends on the uh, company sector, first of all. So assuming that it's a consumer tech sector, so quite broad, uh, a broad field, um, I would say identify your markets, identify your customers, identify your end users and just ask around. I mean, uh, we are almost out of COVID. <laughs> so now we are free to move. So now we, we can engage with people. I mean, we can stay even a meter apart, but still we can ask questions. So if, uh, if you see just a, a random person on, on the street, maybe waiting for something, waiting for the bus, and you, and you see that that could be a potential end user, Ask a question. It doesn't cost anything. And why not? Maybe you can find a friend. Absolutely. So far to date, what has been, you know, kind of the, the, the crowning moment that, you know, the greatest achievement of trying to get this company up and actually running uh, and equally the counterpoint to that, what has been the most difficult bit, the biggest challenge, the biggest headache to getting the company actually started? So the biggest achievement, it was being successful in this for the grant application, so securing fun, public funding and securing the first investment, or at least a commitment to invest from uh, different investors. That is a huge achievement. It means that you know the company is able to build traction. The company is able to start walking with its own legs. The the biggest problem, or a not problem, challenge. I would say in my case, I've never thought to say that I will be the boss of my boss. So, you know, there are certain academic dynamics. So during your uh, anyone PhD studies where you are a PhD students and your professor is your professor, right? So in this case, things has to smoothly transition from that uh, hierarchy to a, compl a complete opposite <laughs> of hierarchy. So that is challenging, but it's possible. How are you? Uh, feel free to answer how as diplomatic as diplomatically as you wish. Like, how are you actually going about restructuring that hierarchy? Is it a smooth transition, or, or are both sides really needing to work to kind of, you know, come to a, a good kind of professional working balance? I would say that it depends on the character of each person. So it's uh, it, it would change. It would change according to to the people, different behavior. Uh, it can be easy. Can be easy because uh, I mean, if on the papers the CEO is the one that is actually legally accountable for what's going on in the company, so at the end of the day, like it or not, someone has to recognize that yes, the CEO is the the person in charge and that's the you know is the captain of the ship, and uh, then it's a matter of. Just changing a bit the attitude, uh, thinking that you are not, in uh, speaking from a professor or academic point of view, uh, a person who was high in the hierarchy in the, in the academia, like you are not working for the CEO, but you are working for something bigger. 
The CEO is just the person that is there and is giving direction, trying to achieve together, all together, that end point. Just broadly, in, in the kind of um, space of being a research scientist, whether that's P PhD or CEO, uh, or PhD or postdoc, sorry, like what would the piece of advice that you wish you had had back in that kind of setting, the academic kind of research pathway setting, what was the key, key piece of advice you wish you could have given yourself in that instance? I, if you want me to be fast, I can say, I can say it in one word, start. Okay. Start. If you want to be committed, if you are sure to be committed in um, making a startup, in making a company and leading it, that company, at least for the next few years, start. Start working on it. Now, do not think about it, just start. Start the process. Do you think the skill sets of a, of a, of a researcher nicely map into that? Or do you think it is, it is like a, is it really dependent on the personality? Is it really dependent on, you know, the, the environment, the time of day, all of those sorts of things? Or do you think really a lot of the, of the components that make people good in the research field also make them good in the founding a company, getting companies started, you know, early into those startups? phase i would say that it depends on the character of the people so uh, we as academic we all have or we all should have a critical thinking that is the proper mindset to, to to run a good business but then it comes down as well to personal behavior to personal character because if you are more introspective you know maybe maybe you want to have another position in the company so that you can be a great cto for example so you can you can look at a company from an internal perspective, but as a CEO, I think it is very important to have the right soft skills to interface the external world, because it's a, so you need to be first of all sure of what you're doing. So you need to know that internally the company is working. You need to know that the product is will be successful, the technology works, and everything will be fine. But you need to you need to transmit this um, sense of confidence, this sense of reliability and, uh, and value externally. And uh, you need to be you know, emotionally clever as well. So you need to know how to behave, behave with um, other industry that you, are, that you are doing relationship with or with, um, with investors or with end users and customers. So I think it comes down to personal character. Do you, do you think those skill sets or that attitude can can be learned though or can be improved at least i i hope they can be learned but i'm quite sure that can be improved so if you have it in you then you can you can improve it for sure but if you're a person that you know that you know that you that you don't to not like to actually speak with other people and you prefer to do your experiment or being in that gen, gen, then find another position. I mean, a company doesn't have only the CEO as a director. You can be director of chemistry. So you will be in charge of that particular you know, aspect of the technology. Still, you're, you're going to be a director and you do not have to interface externally. Transdermal Diagnostics is unique in their sensing technology and their 100% needle-free approach to sensing blood sugar levels. This enables people with diabetes to continuously monitor their blood sugar painlessly and ultimately improve their quality of life.
You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Luca Lapani, CEO of Transdermal Diagnostics. If you want to stay involved, feel free to subscribe to our newsletter or join the Spin Up Society, a thriving community of scientists and entrepreneurs trying to make an impact in the world. All further information can be found on spin-up.science. My name is Dr. Ben Miles, and this has been the Scientist to CEO podcast. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.